It's a great privilege to be speaking to you today. It's a long time since I talked in Oxford and I'm really pleased to be back here. Um, what I want to do is to start off by telling you a little bit about myself so I kind of relieved Mark of that duty because that will actually provide a bit of context for my paper. I'm a medical sociologist who's recently been appointed to a research post in Ethox where I'll be responsible for de developing research on the ethical issues arising in public health research using big data sets. And don't ask me, Mark, what big data is. I know you're dying too. Um, <clears throat> for the last 20 odd years, I've been undertaking research on staff and patients' experiences of genetic testing in clinical and research settings. And while I'm interested in the ethical issues that are associated with decision-making around genetic testing, I am primarily an empirical researcher and have explored ethical issues in genetics and genomics using qualitative methods. More recently, I've been investigating some of the ethical issues identified by clinical and research staff involved in delivering randomised control trials, and I'm going to talk about some of this research today, not least because Mark um, invited me when I was on an ethics retreat in Wales, and this is really all I have prepared to talk about at this moment in time. So this paper is based upon data generated in interviews with healthcare professionals as part of a qualitative evaluation of a UK peripartum randomised placebo-controlled trial, the GOTIT trial, which looked at the use of sublingual glycerol trinitrite spray, or GTN, for the delivery of retained placenta. The GOTIT trial contains an inbuilt pilot phase and certain recruitment targets actually had to be reached for the trial to continue past the first six months. The aim of our research then was to evaluate staff and patients' experiences of the trial's recruitment and consent pathways in the pilot phase to see if these could be improved um, for rollout in the main trial. This evaluation was included because the trial team were very concerned that clinical staff, who were the main recruiters um, in the trial, might find recruiting and consenting women very challenging because the trial was taking place during the peripartum period, when women were in a very vulnerable situation, having just given birth and were required to make informed decisions about trial participation very quickly, as this is a semi-emergency situation. A significant proportion of the interviews with staff were spent exploring their views and understandings of the trial, including its role and purpose, in addition to their experiences of recruiting and consenting. Now, when answering these questions, staff reflected at great length about their hopes and uncertainties, regarding the GOTIT trial. Now, while we'd have expected that, trial w that the staff would actually be very sort of exercised about the recruitment and delivery of the trial, specifically filling in the paperwork, which is a real issue for, for clinical staff on these trials, as the interviews progressed, it became very clear... Well <laughs> it's time for more drink. Um, that a sense of optimism about the trial was actually very critical to the staff's commitment to and involvement with the trial, and thus fundamental to ensuring recruitment to got it. Before I go on to talk about the research, I want to briefly talk about the role of hope, therapeutic optimism and uncertainty in clinical research. 
The phenomena of hope expressed as therapeutic optimism is an essential aspect of medical care. Hope is described within the medical and bioethics literature as having therapeutic value because it enables people to cope with uncertainty about their future health. Hope or therapeutic optimism can be defined as a positive future-oriented emotional state which manifests as a desire for a particular health outcome. Martin argues that therapeutic optimism plays a role in framing people, individuals' imaginative engagement with understanding and use of information about desired outcomes. These features, he argues, may result in biased decision-making about medical treatment or research participation and may also render patients vulnerable to exploitation. Research participation, as I know that you're all aware, is frequently described as motivated by a number of biases or misunderstandings that help people to deal with the uncertainty that lies at the heart of clinical research. In a trial context, in addition to therapeutic optimism, namely hoping that one will benefit from trial participation, these include therapeutic misconception or conceiving of research as needs rather than hypothesis driven, which is associated with holding the view that the care offered in a trial is driven by personal need, not scientific curiosity, and therapeutic misestimation, or consistently misestimating or miscalculating the risks and benefits of participation in one's favour. It has been argued that all of these may have ethical consequences because they may influence participants' decision-making and therefore their ability to give fully informed consent. The literature suggests that hope and uncertainty exist within a complex relationship in clinical research. Clinical trials take place because there is uncertainty about the efficacy and utility of an intervention. But while uncertainty or clinical equipoise is a necessary feature of ethical research, researchers and research participants may find this unsettling and attempt to counterbalance their feelings of uncertainty with hope, and this may have ethical repercussions. The degree to which the degree to which therapeutic optimism affects the ethicality of research has been in, discussed by Horn and Grady who suggests that therapeutic optimism or hope is unavoidable when participating in clinical research. In contrast to therapeutic misconception or therapeutic misestimation, they argue that therapeutic optimism, personal optimism or hoping for the best, is not ethically problematic, should be tolerated and even actively preserved, to quote at least until it results in misunderstanding the risks and benefits of trial participation. However, it must be noted that Horn and Grady are very unclear about how misunderstanding can be distinguished from therapeutic optimism, and this, Janssen argues, is because they do not specify, specify the nature of therapeutic optimism and also view it as a unidimensional phenomena. In her 2011 paper, Janssen argues that what the literature describes as therapeutic optimism is in fact two contrasting phenomena. The first, dispositional optimism, is an individual character trait or disposition which manifests as a generalised positive outlook on the world, always hoping for the best. The second, situational optimism, is focused on particular events or activities, 
hoping for the best in this situation. Situational optimism can be seen as an emotional response or reaction to a particular aspect of the environment and because it is influenced by external factors may be realistic or unrealistic. Dispositional optimism, on the other hand, is a way of interacting with the world, which, she argues, because it is internally generated, cannot be characterised as realistic or unrealistic, although I think that is indeed up for grabs. Janssen argues that these different types of optimism have differing ethical implications for clinical trials. For example, she suggests that research participants who are by nature optimistic, i.e. exhibit dispositional optimism, are more likely to give valid informed consent than those whose optimism is influenced by external factors and who have unrealistic expectations about particular outcomes. The latter, she contends, are more vulnerable to external manipulation and prone to biased decision-making. Thus, for Janssen, dispositional optimism is seen as much less ethically problematic than situational optimism, which can be influenced by others, and in the case of unrealistic situational optimism, may invalidate informed consent by undermining individuals' autonomy. Now, one of the problems with Janssen's analysis, and I'm sure you can come up with many problems, but one of the problems is that it does not specify how the different dimensions of therapeutic optimism are expressed, interact, and potentially influence behaviour. But while her analysis may be less well-defined than one might like, arguably in distinguishing different types of optimism and examining their ethical significance, Janssen makes a very important observation, namely that not all manifestations of therapeutic optimism are equal when it comes to their ethical implications. That said, following Janssen, it can be argued that if her concept of situational optimism is to be used more widely, then we need to determine how it becomes manifest and is sustained in practice. To date, most of the discussion about therapeutic optimism in the context of trials has dealt with research participants, focusing on how therapeutic optimism may bias their decision-making and invalidate their consent, or how therapeutic optimism can be manipulated by researchers during the recruitment process. However, it is not only patients or, or their proxies who may be optimistic about research interventions. As both Miller and Martin argue, clinical researchers may be optimistic about the outcomes of a clinical trial. They may hope for beneficial outcomes for their patients, and this may influence their approach to research. Using staff accounts of their involvement in an RCT, this paper looks at how therapeutic optimism may indeed influence staff participation in research. The analysis presented below suggests that in certain circumstances, hope, expressed as situational therapeutic optimism, facilitates staff engagement with research and may influence trial recruitment. Before I do this, however, I think, I, I think it's important to tell you a little bit more about this trial because it's a very specific type of trial. The GOTIT trial is a randomised, placebo-controlled, double-blind, pragmatic, UK-wide RCT involving women who have a retained placenta recruited from delivery wards. Retained placenta is a major cause of postpartum haemorrhage and affects around 2% of vaginal deliveries in the UK. 
It's diagnosed when the placenta is not delivered within 30 minutes following active management of the third stage of labour. Although some placentas may still be delivered vaginally after a retained placenta is diagnosed, the chance of this happening is very low and decreases the longer the placenta remains in situ. And it can remain in situ for quite a long time because women get backed up waiting to get into the theatre. The definitive management of retained placenta is therefore manual removal of the placenta, which is exactly what it sounds like and is a pretty invasive surgical procedure. The aim of the GOTIT trial is to determine whether the use of GTN spray as compared to placebo can facilitate delivery of the placenta without having to undertake manual delivery in theatre. GTN, as many of you may know, is a drug that was originally developed for the prevention and relief of angina attacks. Its side effects include headache, dizziness, flushing or feeling hot, a drop in blood pressure or a rise in pulse. In the clinical context of retained placenta, it could also affect blood loss due to its primary mode of action, action as a muscle relaxant, so it can indeed bring on a haemorrhage. As I said earlier, the trial comprises an internal pilot followed by a substantive RCT. The pilot began in October 2014 and involved eight sites that entered the pilot in a staggered way. During the pilot, once a diagnosis of retained placenta had been made, a delegated and trained member of the clinical or research team approached potential recruits. These women were given a one-page summary leaflet accompanied by a detailed participant information sheet and a consent form. Women who gave their consent were randomised to receive GTN or a placebo spray, which they self-administered under their tongue. The placebo was designed to be identical in taste and appearance to GTN, so neither participants nor staff could determine the outcome of randomisation at that particular point. Women who did not deliver their placenta within 15 minutes were then taken to theatre for manual removal of the placenta under regional or general anaesthesia. Now, there are two important things to say here. One of the important features of the trial is that GTN has a, has, has a very short half-life in the body. This means that the primary outcome or primary endpoint of the trial, namely the delivery of the placenta, will occur within 15 minutes of the administration of the intervention, which in turn means that recruiting staff can directly observe the outcome of drug administration in their patients. In other words, in contrast to many trials where the primary endpoint may be spatially and temporarily removed from the recruitment site, the link between intervention and outcome in GOTIT is tight. And thus, while trial allocation is blinded to staff and research participations, the outcome for individual women is directly observable by those involved in trial recruitment. In other words, they can see what's happening. <coughs> Have more drinks. Finally, in order to better understand staff reaction and views of the GOTIT trial, it is important to describe the clinical context in which the trial takes place. Because, as many of you will know, continuity of care is emphasised in birthing centres and labour wards, midwife and doctors often develop close and intimate relationships with the women in their care. 
If a woman has to go to theatre for a manual removal of the placenta, many of the important jobs that midwives actually have to do in the immediate postpartum period, initiating mother-baby bonding, breastfeeding and skin-to-skin -skin contact, will be delayed. And in some cases, the much prized continuity of care will actually be interrupted. Moreover, it is generally acknowledged that while the manual removal of placenta normally takes place under regional anaesthesia, it is a very unpleasant and very invasive procedure, particularly if it follows a labour that has involved the minimum of intervention and pain relief. Thus, arguably, birthing centre and labour ward staff have a vested interest in, in the GOTIT intervention working. Because if GTN actually works, it means that midwives can maintain their relationship with the women in their care, deliver their postnatal care more efficiently, and potentially move the women off onto the postnatal ward more quickly. So what did we do? Staff members from all of the eight pilot sites were approached following their in involvement in the recruitment of individual women to the trial. 27 clinical and research staff, which was 73% of those who responded, took part in in-depth phone interviews. The final sample, as you can see, had varying amounts of clinical and research experience. The staff were sampled to reflect trial, different trial experiences. Some sites came on board at the start of the pilot and had been recruiting throughout the seven-month period, whereas others had gone live during the last two months of the pilot's stage. The length of time recruiting to the trial at the site plus the size of the site meant that recruitment rates across the, uh, the sites varied, and this was reflected in our sample. The interview data was analysed using inductive methods informed by grounded theory. So, when reflecting upon their experiences of trial recruitment, staff talked about their uncertainties and hopes for the trial. I'm going to begin by describing staff's uncertainty about the trial and then go on to show how this was counterbalanced by optimism concerning trial outcomes. Finally, I will present data describing how levels of optimism were discursively maintained during the trial. As this slide suggests, because involving clinical, clinical staff in research, particularly those who work in highly pressurised environments, although I'm not sure that there are any environments in the NHS that aren't highly pressurised, is not, active, is not always very straightforward. Our interviewees were very keen to reflect then why they and their colleagues had decided to become involved in GOTIT. Now, I think it's important to note that at the beginning, um, the trial team had thought it would be very difficult to involve clinical staff in this trial because there was a, a certain amount of paperwork and it is indeed an extra job for them to do. The staff accounts revealed the existence of varying degrees of uncertainty at both personal and local site levels, which many described as influencing their engagement with the trial. Dr. D, who had positive experiences of using the study drug, saw uncertainty about the trial outcomes as providing a rationale for their involvement with the research. In others, in contrast, like Dr. E here, expressed much more scepticism about the use of GTN in this setting. 
There was evidence of scepticism and uncertainty coexisting at an individual or site level without this having a deleterious effect upon trial delivery. Dr H reflected that even though staff at their site were personally sceptical about the trial outcomes, this did not necessarily put them off recruiting to the trial as they also acknowledged the existence of clinical equipoise. Only a small number of staff were described or described themselves as sceptical about this study. <coughs> the majority said that initially at least they remained uncertain about the trial, whether GTN would work or not in this clinical context. This group talked positively about Got It Though, either praising the trial's scientific rationale or extolling the potential therapeutic benefits of the intervention. Many interviewees dealt with their uncertainty regarding the use of GTN in this clinical setting by adopting a hopeful attitude towards the trial. The interviews revealed that staff's optimism about Got It was fuelled by a number of situational factors. The first was familiarity with the study drug. Many staff members commented that their prior knowledge about the way GTN works in the body made them feel more confident about being becoming involved in this trial because they understood the rationale underlying the study hypothesis. The fact that most had used GTM before and were aware of its effects and side effects gave them a feeling of security when recruiting participants and administering the intervention. Indeed, most clinical staff said they regarded GTN as a safe intervention even in this novel setting a view that was influenced by using the drug in much more familiar but notably very different clinical contexts, such as for the treatment of angina. Staff described previous experiences of using GTN as making them feel more comfortable using it in the trial and more confident about explaining drug-associated risks and benefits to potential participants when consenting them. So familiarity with GTN allowed staff to offset many of their uncertainties about the trial. While they didn't know what the outcome of the trial would be, the fact that they'd used this drug before to beneficial effect influenced their views of this trial and their role in trial delivery. Prior knowledge can thus be seen as promoting staff buy-in from the outset. Because they were familiar with the drug and perceived it to be relatively risk-free, they were optimistic about the trial and happy to become involved in recruiting to it. Now, familiarity with GTM was not the only situational factor that was reported as influencing optimism about Got It. Hope was also motivated by the fact that the trial potentially addresses what all identified as a pressing clinical need. All interviewees talked about the impact GTN could have on peripartum care if the trial were to be successful, and these potential benefits clearly drove staff's view of the trial. The fact that participation may prevent a woman from having to go to theatre to undergo what some described as a brutal or degrading procedure and be parted from their baby was described as the ultimate incentive for recruitment. Others noted that if GTN was shown to work in this context, then it would not only benefit women and their family, but also obstetrics more widely, because it would decrease staff workload and result in better targeting of clinical resources. 
This hope was motivated by staff perceptions of clinical need for a drug that would enable women to deliver their placenta safely and simply, and this in turn provoked a commitment to re recruit women to this trial. However, levels of optimism did not remain constant throughout this trial. Indeed, there was evidence that for some staff members and in some sites, levels of hope or therapeutic optimism were constantly shifting, and these fluctuations were described as potentially impacting on recruitment rates as the staff concerned engaged with or disengaged from the trial. Therapeutic optimism is all about outcomes, not only hoped for or desired outcomes, but actual eventualities. The staff interpreted outcomes for women in the trial, the delivery of a placenta in the delivery room following administration of the study drug, or the manual removal of a placenta in theatre, as either the realisation or eradication of their hopes respectively. There was evidence that staff were informally monitoring trial outcomes and that this influenced their levels of hope. For example, Dr I reflected that it was a combination of their prior knowledge of GTN and witnessing GTN actually working in the trial that had increased their optimism about Got It and led them to conclude it will show something. Increasing levels of hope were seen to affect staff behaviour. Staff described how the delivery of a placenta following randomisation had resulted in increased levels of optimism about Got It at their site, which resulted in greater numbers of women recruited in the immediate aftermath. But not all randomisations result in the delivery of a placenta, and staff went to great lengths to ensure that levels of hope were maintained despite witnessing negative outcomes for women. For example, in some cases, when women had gone to theatre for a manual removal after administration of the study drug, it was suggested that the outcome in this case was nearly successful because they had not required a proper manual removal and it was speculated that in these cases women had nonetheless received the study drug. Moreover, it was frequently observed that if a woman had needed surgical intervention, then it was more than likely that she had been allocated to placebo. While successful outcomes and speculating about trial allocation may enable staff to main maintain hope, if a centre witnessed a large run of manual removals following administration of the intervention, this could result in declining levels of hope. Research staff said that they worried that a lack of successful outcomes or an increased number of adverse events in their site could negatively impact on trial recruitment, as staff became less optimistic and more sceptical about the trial. For example, although none of the staff interviewed at Site C here reported engaging in selective recruitment practices, they were described by midwife G as adopting a much more precautionary stance with regard to recruitment after a number of postpartum haemorrhages occurred following administration of the study drug. However, the research staff also suggested that declining hope and associated recruitment rates and a negative shift in levels of uncertainty at an individual or site level could be reversed by a run of successful outcomes, which they speculated would instill faith in the trial and boost hope and thus stimulate recruitment. 
Such comments highlight the complex relationship that exists between hope and uncertainty for staff. Research staff in particular acknowledged that hope or faith in the trial was important for individual staff members to sustain the level of uncertainty which they regard as necessary to continue to recruit women to the trial. Witnessing successful staff trial outcomes can be seen as important in this respect because they appear to directly affect staff perceptions of the trial in the sense that a successful delivery was described as leading to increased optimism about the trial which results in a motivation to recruit. A lack of success, particularly a run of visits to theatre or adverse events, as for example in Site C, was reported as leading to declining levels of hope and potentially negatively impacting on levels of uncertainty, which resulted in staff emotionally and potentially physically disengaging from the trial as they began to perceive the research as conflicting with their duties of care. In summary, staff described hope as a dynamic phenomenon, fluctuating at both an individual and site level during the pilot phase of Got It. These fluctuations can be seen as important because if levels of hope de decline too far and too widely within a site, then staff may shift out of individual equipoise and trial recruitment may be negatively impacted. More drinks, everyone. Okay. This paper reports experiences of research and clinical, and clinical staff involved in the delivery of a GOTIT trial. The data suggests that recruitment may be indirectly influenced by shifting levels of therapeutic optimism about the trial held by staff members. It was observed that while staff described themselves as uncertain about trial outcomes at a personal level, this uncertainty was balanced by the hope that the intervention might work and this therapeutic optimism was described as motivating their engagement with the trial. Therapeutic optimism in this instance appeared to be influenced by a number of situational factors, staff's familiarity with the study drug and their perceptions of clinical need and was reinforced or undermined by witnessing the outcome of administering the intervention to their patients. The interviews suggest that staff were informally monitoring trial outcomes in individual cases to see whether the intervention was working or not. And this resulted in fluctuations in levels of hope and uncertainty. Indeed, there was evidence that staff not only continuously scrutinised individual outcomes at their site, but also reframed negative outcomes to reinforce pre-existing levels of optimism. This monitoring and reframing of trial outcomes can be seen as important because it was observed that declining levels of hope may impact on levels of uncertainty, resulting in greater scepticism, which in turn may affect recruitment rates. Following a brief discussion of the data in light of Janssen's analysis of therapeutic optimism, I will consider whether the, wi the wider implications of therapeutic optimism for trial delivery, specifically its relationship with individual equipoise, and some of the ethical and practical implications of this analysis. Janssen argues that in order to ethically accommodate therapeutic optimism within research, we need to distinguish dispositional and situational optimism. Our analysis suggests that their staff views of the trial and commitment to recruitment were at least in part underpinned by realistic situational therapeutic optimism. 
The data suggests that Stav's situational therapeutic optimism involved com a complex convergence of personal knowledge and perceptions and external trial outcomes factors that were particular to this situation. First, Stav's prior knowledge of the study drug and previous experiences of using it meant they felt they could realistically appraise the trial design. They could see how GTN might plausibly work in this setting. Staff's familiarity with the intervention meant that from the outset they saw GOTIT as a feasible, low-risk study, primarily because they perceived GTN as a tried and trusted intervention, and also one which, which incidentally, is very easy for the women to administer. These staff did not just blindly hope for the best, like, the parents, like parents entering their children into high-risk early-stage stem cell trials designed by described by Woods and colleagues, or the staff and patients involved in phase one oncology trials described by Miller. But rather, when considering when, whether to become involved with GOTIT, they drew upon their pre-existing stock of knowledge of and experiences with GTN, and this knowledge can be seen as underpinning their optimism about trial outcomes. Second, the data suggests that therapeutic optimism is grounded upon staff's perception of clinical need. The staff described GOTIT as potentially addressing an unmet need in their patients, and therefore they hoped the trial would work. In this sense, staff views of GOTIT are similar to those recounted by Miller, who argues that optimism displayed by clinician researchers serves as a form of affect management when no other therapeutic options are available and the clinical need is perceived as high. The difference between the staff we interviewed and those participating in phase one oncology trials is that the former appeared to be realistic about potential trial outcomes, not least because therapeutic optimism was grounded in their knowledge of the study drug and ongoing observations of these outcomes. Third, the reports of fluctuating therapeutic optimism at an individual and site levels confirm that the type of optimism observed in GOTIT is situational rather than dispositional. Therapeutic optimism in GOTIT was influenced by witnessing the intervention apparently working or failing in individual cases, which often resulted in increased or decreased levels of optimism within a site. The fact that outcomes for women were reported as being so influential was not unexpected, as the effects of medical outcome on therapeutic optimism are frequently noted in clinical context. Where, where it is observed that patients' positive responses to treatment enforce level, reinforce levels of hope. Finally, it can be argued that the therapeutic optimism displayed in these accounts is realistic. Not only did prior knowledge about GTN enable staff to make informed judgments about trial design, but they also described themselves and others as constantly reassessing their perceptions on the basis of trial experience. Thus, therapeutic optimism was explicitly grounded in the staff's real experiences of trial delivery, not hypothetical speculations about its potential benefits. Arguably, it is the balancing of hope and scepticism about the trial in the context of former and current experiences that affected staff engagement with the GOTIT trial and ultimately influenced and impacted recruitment practices. So what does any of this mean? I would argue that the data potentially throw some light on how staff deal with the uncertainty that lies at the heart of trial methodology.
However, before I discuss the role played by therapeutic optimism in counterbalancing scepticism about trial outcomes, to sustain us uh, scepticism about trial outcomes, we need to distinguish between different types of equipoise. Now, as I know you're all aware, Freeman argues that clinical rather than theoretical equipoise is needed if research is to be regarded as ethical. Clinical equipoise is defined as present or imminent controversy within the clinical community over the preferred treatment. He suggests that clinical equipoise is important from an ethical point of view because it does not require individual researchers to be in a personal state of uncertainty in order to become involved in research. Clinical equipoise is knowledge-based. It involves balancing the objective evidence for and against different intervention and requires acknowledgement within the expert clinical community that there is sufficient uncertainty about which treatment should be used. In other words, clinical equipoise rests on a lack of consensus or disagreement within the expert clinical community about preferred treatment. In contrast, when researchers describe themselves or their local community as being in equipoise, what they are often referring to is a phenomenological state of uncertainty. Thus, individual and local, i.e. site equipoise, is not only based on the weighing of probability or scientific facts and or an awareness or acknowledgement of clinical equipoise, but also involves subjective perceptions of certainty and uncertainty. Individual equipoise can be seen as equally important as clinical equipoise for some researchers, because arguably it is these feelings of uncertainty about research outcome which enable them to engage in research without feeling that they are compromising their clinical obligations. Individual equipoise may fluctuate throughout a trial as individuals or the local community, those at the trial site, begin to perceive trial outcomes as becoming more or less certain and begin to favour one trial arm over another as a result. Once researchers, either at a personal or group level, believe that a particular trial outcome will or will not occur, they can be said to, said to lack equipoise, and this may undermine the ethical nature of the trial if it begins to influence the recruitment process. Indeed, in a recent study of a number of clinical trials that were experiencing recruitment difficulties, Donovan and colleagues report that a lack of individual equipoise regarding particular types of patients resulted in selective recruitment practices on the part of individual doctors, which biased ascertainment in some of the trials they observed. The impact of shifting equipoise on staff's intention to recruit to trials may be explained by the fact that staff find uncertainty and certainty in clinical trials very difficult to manage. Donovan et al. and Snowden report that the staff they studied as moving in and out of equipoise during the lifetime of a trial. In these studies, staff dealt with uncertainty by embracing it or dismissing it and opting for the greater certainty displayed by their personal or site preferences. In our study, individuals' involvement in recruitment appeared to have less to do with levels of individual equipoise or individual or group beliefs about the efficacy of the trial than their hopes that the trial intervention would work and that patients would not have to undergo a surgical procedure. 
Indeed, it can be argued that the relationship between levels of therapeutic optimism and individual equipoise in Got It was crucial in determining staff's commitment to recruitment. The data suggests that the relationship between theoretical th therapeutic optimism and individual equipoise is complex. As noted above, individual equipoise can be seen as a dynamic phenomena in which perceptions of certainty and uncertainty constantly shift during the lifetime of a trial. In this study, therapeutic optimism or a desire for the intervention to work was frequently expressed by trial in staff involved in trial delivery and arguably this optimism was essential for sustaining the levels of equipoise in staff members who had repeatedly witnessed negative outcomes. This was particularly evident in sites where growing scepticism about the trial was observed amongst staff members. The research staff in these sites worried about staff's disengagement with the trial, observing that clinical staff needed to maintain a certain degree of uncertainty about trial outcomes, i.e. to be in equipoise, in order to motivate them to keep recruiting in the face of these seemingly negative outcomes. In other words, it can be argued that therapeutic optimism was constructed as essential to recruitment in the GOTIT study because it counterbalanced negative shifts in equipoise and thus allowed staff to retain a degree of uncertainty that they personally needed in order to continue recruiting. This study then suggests that therapeutic optimism and equipoise coexist in a finely balanced relationship within trials that permit ongoing monitoring of individual outcomes. <coughs> therapeutic optimism, like individual equipoise, can be seen as a dynamic phenomena which fluctuates throughout these trials and is contextually determined by trial experiences. Thus witnessing unsuccessful outcomes or adverse events may lead to declining levels of optimism and disturbances in equipoise. If levels of optimism should become too low, then individuals may no longer be able to sustain equipoise and as a consequence may disengage from the trial both emotionally and physically and this impacts on trial recruitment, as others have noted. Evidence of successful outcomes, on the other hand, maintains levels of optimism in both individual and study sites, which promotes engagement with the trial and sustains a level of uncertainty or individual equipoise, which is deemed necessary for staff to ethically deliver the trial. Of course, one thing I have not addressed is what might happen to trial recruitment if, in the light of their informal monitoring, recruiting staff become unrealistically or over-optimistic about the trial intervention. While this was not an issue here, it can be speculated that if trial only witness positive outcomes and are not exposed to negative outcomes or adverse events, then this may affect their levels of optimism and equipoise. In this situation, it is possible that staff will start to believe rather than just hope that the trial intervention works, and this assumption may impact on their recruitment practices. While this could increase a site's recruitment rates, this will be at the expense of research participants' autonomy and wider research standards if staff's view of the trial influence the ways in which they present the trial to potential participants. Moreover, over-optimism or growing certainty about the efficacy of a trial intervention could also cause staff to shift out of equipoise, which might result in them recruiting refusing to recruit their patients to an RCT because they see this as compromising their duty of care.
Such speculation suggests there is a need for further research which looks at the shifting relationship between the nature of informal trial evidence and its relationship to equipoise and therapeutic optimism. Nearly finished. Like clinical staff involved in phase one trials, the staff we interviewed said they had become involved and got it because they hoped the women they recruited would derive therapeutic benefit from their participation. Does it really matter if staff's engagement in research is motivated by a desire for therapeutic benefit rather than scientific curiosity? It has been argued that the adoption of any therapeutic or orientation to research can result in the blurring of the boundaries between clinical care and research interventions, and that this may have negative implications, particularly if it results in staff confusing the goals of research with treatment and conveying this to their patients. As noted above, there was no evidence in this instance that the staff misunderstood the nature of the activities in which they were engaged, nor that the therapeutic optimism displayed in their accounts was unrealistic. Indeed, it was quite clear that staff were in agreeing to recruit to GOTIT because they hoped, but did not know or believe, that GTN might be effective in this setting. Moreover, as noted, Earlier, the fact that there was evidence of fluctuating optimism at an individual level suggests that therapeutic optimism in this instance was firmly grounded in observed outcomes rather than unrealistic speculations or staff misestimating the outcomes. So following Janssen and Horn and Grady, I would argue that holding an optimistic view of research is not ethically problematic per se, However, the extent to which researchers make their optimism explicit when recruiting trial participants is ethically important. Indeed, it would be ethically problematic for researchers to emphasise their hopes for a positive outcome during recruitment, because expressions of unsubstantiated optimism, no matter how unrealistic about the efficacy and utility of trial interventions, could bias potential participants' perceptions and influence their decision-making and hence undermine their autonomy and potentially invalidate their consent. Before we look at how these findings could inform future trial recruitment practices, it's important to note that the impact of staff's observations on trial outcomes of levels of, on levels of therapeutic optimism and subsequent impact on recruitment maybe indeed probably is related to the specific nature of this trial. Arguably, the fluctuations of, in levels of hope that we witnessed in GOTIT, like the levels of shifting equipoise observed by Snowden, were only possible because the design of the trial permitted ongoing informal monitoring. As I emphasised earlier, GOTIT takes place in an emergency situation where staff and research participants are required to make quick decisions and trial outcomes are more or less immediately apparent. Enabling staff to infer a causal link between administration of the intervention and the outcomes. This means that staff can constantly get a feel for the trial findings while recruitment is ongoing, despite the fact that blinding is still in place. And that also means they are able to adjust their levels of optimism to accommodate these observations. 
Given that an increasing number of trials are taking place in which the outcomes are known to recruiters during the recruitment period, these findings point to a need for ongoing staff training and support throughout such trials to ensure that fluctuating levels of optimism and equipoise based upon staff's personal observations do not contaminate recruitment and delivery practices. Eberall suggests that providing staff with training about the conceptual underpinning of trial delivery, clinical equipoise, and getting them to acknowledge their treatment preferences facilitates trial delivery by enabling them to take a more objective stance towards trial recruitment. Providing training throughout the lifetime of a trial that allows staff to reflect upon how their optimism and their hopes and uncertainties about the trial is an, are su sustained, maintained and reinforced by their trial and other experiences might be similarly helpful and ensure that optimism does not bias recruitment rates. To conclude, finally, please have another drink. The influence of therapeutic optimism in clinical medicine has long been acknowledged, but the role played by optimism in clinical research has been underspecified. This paper looks at the function of therapeutic optimism optimism in recruitment to a clinical trial. It is argued that therapeutic optimism enables staff to sustain a level of individual equipoise that is needed to ethically deliver a clinical trial. It's observed that prior experience and ongoing informal monitoring of trial outcomes may affect recruiting staff's levels of optimism and as a, res as a result staff may require training and support so that fluctuating levels of hope and uncertainty do not negatively impact trial recruitment. Thank you.